Welcome to the Celtics Pride Podcast on Celtics Blog. With me, Joshua Motenko. I am Adam Motenko. Josh, we're without Mike Minkoff again, so it's another twinerific, twintastic podcast. Oh yeah, we got the twin takes for you all today. We are doing an immediate reaction to Game 2. Celtics Sixers sees with a blowout win, 128-101. Josh, I'm feeling a lot better about this one <laughs> than I did at the beginning of the last game. Are you surprised? No, not at all. This is par for the course for me, just overreacting to everything. Yeah, hopefully we don't overreact with too much glee on this pod. <laughs> this is the team that I expected to see in Game 1. I thought I thought the Celtics came out aggressive on defense last time. This time they also came out aggressive on offense, um, and, and they played great. Uh, what did you see from this game? Oh, man, it's the Embiid rope-a-dope, baby. It's happening. Called it last week. Let the man score 40. He doesn't want to go through us. You know, he's, he's afraid of the constant pounding and physicality. Yep. So, I, you know, I was thinking about... You mentioned last game how he was tired. I was like, you know, 11 points in the first quarter, 15 in the, the uh, second, third, and fourth last game. And you were like, yeah, he, he just got tired. And you could see it. I mean, I was watching that. I was, he probably uh, put the thought in my head. But he looked exhausted. I, I, was watching, I was watching with some little kids tonight. And one of them was like, wow, he's sweating so much. Why is he sweating so much? And I said, because he's out of shape. And you could tell, just even coming out of the second half, he looked he looked winded. And towards oh, the end of the game, huh? Let me ask you something. Okay. As someone who's played basketball not very well in your life, but who's played, what do you do when you get tired offensively? Well, I, I, thinking back, I mean, you said not well, so I kind of got stuck on the not well part, and then I I didn't really listen to the rest well, of the sentence. Disregard that. So what do you do when you're tired and you're playing basketball offensively? I, I sit and wait for stuff to happen. <laughs> and then when you get the ball, what do you want? The jumper. Yeah. You don't want to go through contact. You don't want to drive and, and expel more effort. So that, obviously that's what he was doing. We're giving him the mid-range shot. Take it. Score your 40. You're not going to win the game that way. That's not how you put a team on your back. The only way that he can hurt us is to score down low and get us in foul trouble at the same time as scoring points. I saw it more on the offensive glass and on defense. I mean, this, well, he doesn't. He, yeah, this defense that they are playing, he he falls so far back into the paint. I was worried that we don't have three point shooting centers to be able to pull and beat out. And you don't need them. We just need the, our centers to set a pick, and we're getting guards and forwards completely wide open looks because Embiid isn't contesting at all. Yeah, what are the most physical parts of the game of basketball? It's driving to the rim and finishing through contact, boxing out, getting down in a stance and defending someone, moving your feet and chesting someone up. I mean, effort plus physicality is, is what he's avoiding because he's trying to save himself. Like He's obviously trying to pace himself and be smart, at least he thinks. But I'm wondering if it's, it's not that he's soft, but more that he just knows his body's too brittle and so he doesn't want to go through all that pounding because he knows he can't handle it. I love how every time every time I bring something up about Embiid not being in shape, your response is basically, he don't want it. Yeah, he don't want it. His body language looked, looked bad in the third quarter. And I thought, he's done. He's gassed both physically and motivationally. And it's the second part, motivationally, that would be the concern if I am a Sixer fan. Yeah, and obviously on the Celtics Pride podcast, we're not only going to talk about Joel Embiid. And I can't put it all on his shoulders, you know, for two reasons. He's got a supporting cast, but still, I don't think Simmons would have been enough 
in this series. Uh, you know, he, he wouldn't have been enough, like past tense. Um, he does guard Tatum a lot better than anybody else they currently have. Yeah, and obviously, you know, Stan Van Gundy mentioned that during the game. Obviously, he, they, he would have made them better, but that doesn't change what's going on offensively for them. And they're not going to beat the Celtics unless they can figure out a better way you know, to, to execute and get buckets and get us in foul trouble. We're weak right now, and we're really thin. Uh, you know, our depth is shot now without Gordon Hayward. So, I mean, shoot, you get at one of our three main guys in foul trouble, and we're in deep trouble. So let's talk about how it appeared that we were... Wait, but hold on, okay. hold on, hold on, hold on. Because this is bigger than just the Sixers and Embiid. This is, this is about Boston Celtics basketball. I need to, like, get a little bit impassioned right now. The other reason, you know, why Boston has Boston's had a knack for getting in the heads of big time players, you know, for years, um, and even LeBron fans have to admit that after all his battles with Paul Pierce, it was difficult for LeBron to get through Boston. We were kind of like the one team he couldn't figure out for a while until he did. Right, even at the end of his career, I wonder if we're you know, because of the history with Boston, if we're that one team that he still hates and still knows that we can get under his skin, this is just, Embiid is, is, is one of a long line of NBA greats who've gotten mentally decapitated by the organization as a whole, the Celtics organization. Like we, as a team, as a unit, with everybody coming in off the bench and waves, everyone kind of does their part and fits into their role as long as Tatum's doing his thing. You know, it's, this is like Celtics pride to to the utmost. And I feel like as the Celtics Pride podcast, one of our goals is to educate people. Like this is this is what Boston Celtics basketball is all about. We get under people's skin and and we deflate them. And that's what you saw from Embiid. So it's not all his fault. This is just what we do. It's just what happens when you play the Celtics, whoever is on the roster. I think when you have a good Celtics team, when you have the longevity of Ainge and the connection to Auerbach and the legacy, this is what Celtics basketball has done for generations. In today's game, it felt to me like it was Marcus Smart and Jason Tatum bringing that aggressiveness. And, and if anybody was getting in the heads and the hearts of the, of the opponent, it was the two of them leading the way. Absolutely. Uh, the Seas held Philly to 24% from three while hitting 44% of their own threes. They took 43 threes tonight. They made 19. That's a lot. Was this just a really good shooting night for us? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there yeah. were wide open threes. Like I said, the pick and roll on the perimeter uh, against Embiid's man is a disaster for Philly. And w- w- they were all wide open. I couldn't believe they kept playing that way. 44% from three. That's a good shooting night. It was another frustrating night for me watching Daniel Tice. He is hesitant with all capital letters shooting the three. Uh, did not shoot it well again. And and I don't even care because we don't need him if they're going to play defense that way. Yeah, he's only got to hit one or two just to keep it respectable. So you have to consider going on out there if you're guarding him. Uh, but you had other guys pitching in tonight too. I mean, it wasn't just smart kind of in his intensity. Grant Williams was all over the place in terms of loose balls and his hustle. He also, he had a certain play. He got knocked down one time and kind of just sat there and waited for his teammates to come. That's the kind of thing that that he does that's kind of beyond his years. He knows, and I think it was Wanamaker, it was a couple of reserves that picked him up. Um, Tatum had gone all the way in for the layup, and so he wasn't going to do it. Brown was on the other end of the court. So it was like, he's like, no, come and get me. Like, let's, let's do this. We're together in this. I'm not going to stand up on my own. Like, we're a team. 
Um, and that's kind of training the, the bench guys, the young guys with some wisdom. Um, but you know, there's, there's other guys, Cantor. I loved the way he played tonight. Um, I was happy that we didn't see Robert Williams for the entire first half because Cantor was just doing everything that his teammates expected him to do. He even hit that three, but like always there for the offensive rebounds. We know that already, but he's always fighting for off block rebound position. When a shot goes up, he's always on the opposite block, carving out space, dislodging somebody. Um, he's always at the front of the rim when we drive baseline. So we know that drop off passes there. He's just always in the right spot where his teammates expect him to be, which is such a like high level skill to just be reliable and to always be where your teammates think you're going to be. Um, and Robert Williams, kind of the opposite. We never know what he's going to do or where he's going to be, right? So does um, he know where he's going to be on the court? Do you think? No, he's just hooping, not. man. I'm just out there hooping. <laughs> um, but it made me think. Like, I think Cantor might be one of the best. Is Cantor the best Turkish big man in NBA <laughs> history? <laughs> At least the best big man since Mehmet Okur. I mean, you can't spring a question like that on me without giving me a list of the top 10 Turkish big men of all time. Well, a lot of them didn't pan out in the NBA, went back overseas, but yeah, Turkey basically is, is a country that's put out a lot of really good fundamental big men who are often really strong uh, and physical. And it's like, that's the kind of thing that, that, uh, that Cantor embodies. Yeah. Cantor was brought in to shadow Embiid. And <laughs> I made a note that um, Cantor playing against a tired Embiid is a totally different experience. Yeah, my buddy Mark was like, once Cantor came in, we sh he shut him down. He shut down Embiid. <laughs> no, not all the way there. Nah, he yeah. just bumped him. He's got a little strength, and, uh, and Embiid didn't want it. So the bench tonight, I mean, it was really Cantor, Grant Williams, and Wanamaker with some Romeo sprinkled in. Um, Wanamaker played well, hit a, a big, aggressive three, uh, coming off one of those picks that I mentioned. I love how aggressive he was on that shot. Grant Williams shot well and, and played well. Um, Romeo hit a three that I thought was really big, just given uh, where his health is at with his, his uh, tendon issues with the right hand, his shooting hand. Um, is this? We did see Shemi come in as the first player off the bench, right? Uh, and then he didn't end up playing a ton of minutes. How did you feel about that? Well, he came in. I took note of it. And, and you know, he's... He, he came in and basically gave up a drive from Tobias Harris from the top of the key straight down the paint. And I was just like, come on, Brad, like, please put Romeo in the game. <laughs> and obviously he did later on. Romeo played well. And then Brad at the end of game in garbage time, I don't know if you noticed this, gave Romeo time at the point guard next to Javante Green and Shemi Ojale. So yep. the only ball handler on the court, right? Maximizing his development in crunch time. And he also put Robert Williams at the four next to Taco, making both of those guys think and get reps playing while using their brain at the same time. Yeah, I thought Romeo played with poise for a rookie. He played his typical strong D. It's clear that, that Brad is trying to grow him into the player that we all think he can be. And we kind of need it to happen over the next four weeks so that uh, uh, at least in the next series, and I I hate to say that I, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but um, we need we need that Gordon Hayward replacement on the wing. If Romeo can step up at, at all and, and fill in as a partial substitute, that's huge for this team. Um, but looking at who came in, Cantor, Grant Williams, and I expect Grant Williams to, to get more run too, just based on the way he played. Wanamaker and Romeo. This feels so Brad Stevens in that it's kind of like last game, 
Robert Williams got a lot of run. I thought he played well enough. I thought he, he defended Horford really well. I thought he added something. And I thought he had more room to to show that he he had more uh, to give in this series. And then he barely got any run this game. Grant got the minutes instead. Um, Romeo played a, a second or two in the last game, got a bunch of run this game. This is so Brad Stevens in the regular season where it's he hasn't decided what his rotation is. Is this going to be... Brad Stevens throwing these guys out there and seeing immediate reactions and in how they play and that determining who ends up coming off the bench? Or does he actually have a pecking order for this series? No, I don't think he has a pecking order for the series. I think that he's trying to temper expectations of young players. He does a good job of that. I think not playing a guy for important minutes during a game does that. Even if the players already played well, it kind of reinforces what you've been telling that player, not what they think based on their last game. Uh, they should receive, right, as far as playing time goes. So he's really good at tempering expectations of young players. The other thing is, I wonder, you know, this is Brad's first really, really good team, like really good team. Um, that That's an actual team with good chemistry. So I wonder if he's just in the, in, this is his first time in this situation. This is the first time our coach of seven years has experienced this, possibly, of, of uh, you know, having a bunch of young guys that he's got to develop while having a really good team that's a super cohesive unit. He could easily have a rotation figured out, but he's got these young guys that keep getting better and better, like literally week to week. So I wonder if part of it is just, you know, he's he hasn't figured it out yet how to do both at the same time. Isn't that rotation problematic? Like doesn't doesn't that send the wrong message to players? Don't they want to know what their role is so they can prepare for that? Yes. And especially if you're losing. If you're winning, that kind of heals all wounds. As long as you're winning, it don't matter what you think you deserve. All that matters is what the coach, the head coach decides because you're winning. The Celtics bench scored 41 points tonight, hit six of six from three. That is definitely not going to happen every night, especially when Marcus Smart is not one of those members. I'm a little bit concerned about that, that style of decision making for the bench. And because uh, you just you get the wrong players in and, and it's not a good situation. Well, this the playoffs, the NBA is a what have you done for me lately type of league in the playoffs. That's even more magnified. So, you know, you saw that with with Tybal, um getting the start tonight uh, for the Sixers. You know, he played really well yesterday, especially in combination with Josh Richardson defensively. Boom. All of a sudden you're starting. So and for the Celtics, too, I think Romeo playing well today and getting a couple minutes at the end of uh, the game one now kind of ensures, okay, he's, he's good lately. So let's try him out more. And, and hopefully he gets more run than Ojale who did not play that well. And so therefore, what have you done for me lately? Shemi, you know? Um, so I think that as we see players either play well or not play well, we're going to uh, see the, the, uh, the lineups and the personnel and the hierarchy kind of, get set as we go through the playoffs. We haven't talked about Jason Tatum much, and he was the star of this game, shooting incredibly efficiency from the, the floor. 8 of 12 from 3, 33 points, plus 29 on the game. I loved his swagger in this game, including his support from the bench when he was out. Great stat from Jared Weiss. He is Tatum is scoring 45.8 points per 100 possessions in the first two games of this series. That's ahead of Embiid. It's trailing only Donovan Mitchell, James Harden, and Doncic after their historic scoring performances in Game 1. 
Josh, who is the best player in the series? Right now, it's Tatum. Yeah. I mean, 100%. Yeah. You, you had Shaq at halftime talking about Embiid's got to do it in the second half. He scored 12 points in the second half. You know, I'm sure that's not cutting it as far as Shaq is concerned. And it's just a matter of time, I think, before the national media decides and anoints Jason Tatum as, okay, he's the best player in this series. If he keeps playing this way, it's going to go a long way to anointing him to other things as well. Uh, I, I can't say enough good things about him. He was just feeling it in this game. And a lot of those were really difficult shots. Step backs, fallaways from three. He was hitting everything. It was really beautiful to watch. What, Adam, what was your play of the game, if you think about it? I, I can't even remember a specific play, but it would have happened in the second quarter. I mean, this game was, felt like it was over by halfway through the third. I mean, you had, you had the Kemba deflection that led to the Jalen Brown what, 360 dunk or whatever that was. You had the half-court shot by Tatum. We had some really big-time plays in this game. Like We had several play-of-the-game type plays. My play of the game, Smart drives in and he's right in front of Embiid at the rim. And he makes this little like bounce pass ball fake in order to shoot the ball like a little three-footer over, over Embiid to score. And it's the perfect type of like Celtic pride, I'm smarter than you type of play. You know, I'm going to give you this little fake and, and you're done. Uh, that was my play of the game. But we had several. I don't know if this was my play of the game, but I, I love the play I liked the most was shortly after that when Marcus Smart drove into Embiid, got the foul, and hit the runner. Yeah. And Embiid was, that was like a point where Embiid looked done. Like he didn't even react. It was, you know, it, it was a debatable call. I don't think he felt like he did much to deserve it. And he was reserved to uh, what the outcome of this game was looking like at that point. And that was another play where Smart was like, I'm smarter than you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go aggressively at you and get you in foul trouble. And uh, there's nothing you can do about it. And I'm going to hit the shot in your face. Can we talk about Kemba? Yeah. So I was a little disappointed at the beginning of the game, the start of the game. You know, it seemed like he, with, with Hayward out, he really needs to step up scoring-wise. Yes. And when we weren't playing well, well, that's, I mean, I was yelling at the TV, like, okay, we need Kemba, we need Kemba. Like, this is now your time after all this time of trying to figure, figure out how to fit in and how to be the floor general. Now we have one of our top scorers out. You need to step up. And like, that means he's got to hit shots at the rim. He's got to finish. He's got to hit that mid range shot and, and pull up when he has it. Um, he was getting that neck massage in the uh, first half. I was a little concerned about that, but like the matchups that this guy has against him, Alec Burks, Shake Milton, like go at these guys. You yeah. you are one of the guys who has the biggest mismatch on the court. Um, so what? How do you think he did? Obviously, he picked it up more in, in the second half. Yeah, there were a number of plays where he took it aggressively off the bounce to the basket. I think that's what needs to happen. He was squeezing up nice layups. I think he's he is he did enough in this game to make me feel like yeah, he is a handful for the other team. They have no way to guard him. I, I was happy with his game. I I think he is still coming along uh, in recovery from the injury. He shot one of six from three point land. He didn't make a three last game, and I, I can't remember how many shots he took, five, something like that. So I, I'm wondering, I, it's, I don't think his legs are fully back. And if that is the case, then I think that it also explains why he is not taking over in the way that you want him to be aggressive. Um, 
So uh, he only played 26 minutes tonight. Hopefully that will help him get a little more rest for the next game and and he will continue to progress. But I, th- I think it's going to take him another week or maybe more to get back to what we're used to seeing from Kemba. I will say that um, this Philly team is, they were one of, the, I think they're the best team in the league in the number of threes that they give up. They give up 10, an average of 10 per game. We shot 40 something today. And um, they are one of the worst teams in the league in giving up mid-range shots, which is really how you want to play basketball these days. But against us, with players like Kemba and Tatum and, and Hayward, who's, who's out, um, we are actually pretty adept at taking advantage of the mid-range uh, shots that they give us. Jalen Brown is another that's really good at that. And I saw Kemba Walker doing that today. Um, he was another one of these players that was... Uh, taking advantage of the pick and roll with that, with Embiid dropping back and just getting wide open shots, and he he was hitting them. He was eight for sixteen. I'm happy with that. Um, he got to the foul line five times. I mean, it's. I agree. He needs to step it up. It wasn't needed in this game, but it's definitely going to be going forward. As a coach at the college level, what we would teach year after year is there's a difference between like the 14, 15 foot free throw line length jump shot, like that mid range shot, compared to like getting deep into the paint. And then having like a fadeaway jumper or an eight-foot type of shot. And Jalen Brown is really good at those. Kemba's really good at getting really deep and then, you know, shooting that that pull up right inside the free throw line. I feel like the Sixers mid-range shots are like a Tobias Harris 18-footer or an Embiid 14-footer. Like they're not they're not deep mid-range shots. And so we would actually teach the 15-footer is not the mid-range. Like you need to get deep into the paint for a mid-range jumper because everything from the free throw line to the three-point line is the worst shot in basketball. So I wonder if if the Sixers are defining that mid-range jumper and, and they even allow Embiid to shoot it as much as you want. So it's like they don't see that as a negative. But just imagine, you know, Brett Brown is coming out to the national media after his interviews saying, well, these guys are really good one-on-one players. So we've got some matchup situations. We're just trying to find the best matchup possible. And then he goes back into the huddle, and he knows that Embiid's not going to come up and show all the way on the screens. I mean, Charles Barkley's at the halftime report talking about you need to either hedge or show on the screen. Like you got to you got to get up to it yeah. at least to be able to play both. And if you need to then drop back, you can drop back after going all the way up to the screen. But Embiid obviously doesn't have the the motor for that. So you know you're Brett Brown. You're going back to this huddle. You know you're getting killed on these. Uh, ball screens, which is leading to threes, not leading to drives into the paint and, and, and the big man rolling. Like that's the old school pick and roll. This is threes by the, the ball handler. So, you know, even with Thibel, the best player in the league at trailing, at going over a screen and trailing to block the three point shot, like even with that, they're giving up so much that, you know, it's, it's, they're not going to be able to play their normal three point defense or their more normal mid range defense, even. Um, when they're just in kind of a heap of trouble with a coach who's who's <laughs> openly saying like, yeah, we don't know what to do. We're just going based on these these matchups um, because we don't, you know, they just don't have the guards and wings to defend our guys. I mean, Sixers fans got to be so disappointed in in uh, Harris right now. Um, the way he's shooting the ball, the way he's not. Re- I mean, he's just a solid player, but he needs to be a star. For that money, he certainly does. Josh, when we did our preview podcast, you said if you were the Sixers, you would start Al Horford 
because you got to go with the guys that have experience. You got to go with your stars. Horford lost his starting job in this game. Matisse Tybel started over him. Horford was a non-factor in this game. He only played 23 minutes. Two of three from the floor. Two boards, one block, four points. Negative 11 plus minus. And, and what is he doing vocally? That's my big thing. If he's not performing, but he can actually be a coach on the floor, that's different. Because one of the questions I'm asking myself, you know, when, when we go to our zone in the second half, obviously Coach Stevens is trying to junk it up on defense, throwing some possessions zone at them, and, you know, making, <laughs> making Brett Brown look like he's being outcoached. But, like, Brett Brown doesn't have the communication with his guys to adjust to that when it happens in game. I, and he doesn't even have, like, the personnel as far as guys on the court who's got a high IQ and is going to be able to recognize that's happening and direct people like, like a point guard is going to like Ben Simmons even isn't even that kind of a floor general type of point guard mentality guy. Like who's their coach on the floor? Who's the extension of the coach? The only person that it could be at this point is, is Horford, but is, is he too quiet to even play that role? So even if Brown's being outcoached, like the communication to the court is a, and, and back to the staff is a is the issue because I'm sure he and his and Udoka and the rest of that coaching staff are sitting there like, okay, it's happening. Look, we're we're in a zone. We're not realizing it, and it's just it takes that extra time to communicate, even if you recognize what's going on. Shouldn't that fall on Embiid? It should, but I mean, and we already know that Embiid can't carry the load he's being asked to carry right now as a scorer. You know, so I think mentally he's he's exhausted. So he, and if you're out of shape physically, mentally you're also going to be out of shape too. You're not going to be able to. And you know, does Embiid have that IQ anyway? He's not the first guy I would think of. Let that guy be the superstar. You need another guy who's going to recognize and communicate things on the court. I kind of liked the way Matisse Tybel played plays defense against Tatum. Uh, he was negative thirty, the worst on the team this game, and and. Tatum obviously played amazingly well, but I, I kind of feel like this is the beginning of a of a rivalry. Am I crazy? No, no. There is something there. He's he's a special defensive player, and he's he's the Bruce Bowen of that team. He's the guy who can't yeah. shoot, who you're going to put on the best player, and he's really going to actually make an impact on superstars, which it's, is really hard to do. This year, he's a he's a rook. You know, he's, he's getting rooked out there. Bruce Bowen is a great comparison. So, if you're Brett Brown, what do you do? What do you change? God, I, I I get on my knees and pray. Can the Sixers recover from this? No, man. Look, you you if you're his coach, like part of his angry face that he makes in, late in the game when he's just so pissed off at what's going on, you know that that East Coast face that we know so well, like you know, like all the words I want to say on this podcast but won't. He his last ditch effort to save his job, if I'm him, is like you got to go to Embiid and say. You need to go through these guys. Like, if you're going to lose your job, at least try that. At least get on them. Yeah, Embiid with 35 points, 34 points tonight, 10 boards. He's getting to the foul line. He's shooting fine. It's just not enough. I like I as a Celtics fan, I take that every single night. He needs to be scoring in the 40s. He needs to be completely dominant throughout the entire 48 minutes. And he, it just doesn't seem like he has it in him. I'm shocked by that. Well, I mean, this is 
there's, there's a long line of players throughout NBA history, you know, and we mentioned Brad Doherty and Patrick Ewing on the last podcast of guys who just didn't reach that next level, but had all the tools to do so and showed you during the regular season that they could. But then in the playoffs, psychologically, it's just a different beast. And you really want, you need to want it. And B doesn't want it. Like he needs to want to go through people to get our team in foul trouble. He knows his coach is going to let him shoot whatever shot he wants, but you need to, you, you need to punish us. And I mean, how many times have coaches or how many times have coaches had a big man on their team that they wish was tougher and wasn't, you know, going to play so perimeter oriented for any coaches who are listening or how many people basketball novices out there listening have thought like, gosh, what I would give to be 6'10 or 7 foot, how dominant I would be. You used to tell me that, Adam. If I was 6'10, you know, like we've all had that thought. I would need athleticism too, though. Yeah, of course. You, you need all the tools and beats <laughs> got. But then like how many of us regular sized people wish that we could do what they do and we're that size and what kind of mentality we'd have if we were that size. And when you're that size, your mentality often is this is tough. Like I'm getting punished all the time and, you know, I'm not getting – I'm not getting the value for the effort I'm putting in. And if my whole team is on my shoulders right now, I got to pace myself. Like there's just so much at play. You really need to be a special human being to, to be in that body and want to do what that body can do. I feel like, well, if you're a Celtics fan, you have to be feeling pretty good tonight. Any final thoughts? No, I mean, we're going to try to give you all instant reaction after these playoff games. It's a special time of year. We're soaking it up and uh, we hope you're tuning in and listening every episode. Yeah, subscribe if you like it. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>